Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. My friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, joins me to offer some professional insight about my conversation with Jasmine Irvin, who was gracious enough to have a very open conversation with me about some discoveries she made about her mental health. Enjoy. Gotta love Zoom. Pre-pandemic, I had never heard of Zoom. I had never really used teleconferencing. As a matter of fact, I never used teleconferencing at all because I'm old school like that. I'm surprised I don't have a track in the crib. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I um uh, I have a tape. I actually have a tape. Um, my father, who passed away uh, about 20 years ago. Um, had a lot of tapes and I found one recently and I showed it to my daughter and she's like, what's that? And I was explaining. Yeah. And I had a chance to show them how it worked the other day. But anyway, had it not been for Zoom, I wouldn't be able to have this conversation with my guest today, who I met many years ago, I believe, at a um, mutual friend's, well, your cousin and my friend's birthday party or some sort of celebration. Yeah, I think so. Yep. And Connecticut, right? Yes, in Connecticut. Yeah. I don't remember who followed who on Facebook. It was probably me being a creep. Sorry. Um, <laughs> hey, that's how you meet. That's how you make new friends. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad and you I'm did. Like, You're a pretty interesting guy. I've been told. People keep telling me that. Why do you think I'm interesting? Like, what? Define interesting. Well, I think that you have a really good insight into yourself and to others. You have a good way of looking at like different perspectives of people. And you're also a really good storyteller. Like, remember when you had that blog? I enjoyed reading those stories of you, like just talking to people. And, you know, it's just those little pockets of something. But you just are able to tell like a whole great story about it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Thank you. That blog is still up and I'm not sharing the address. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, I am here with uh, Jasmine Irvin. Again, I met her several years ago, and she posted about her journey with understanding her mental health. And I was so uh, moved by it that I reached out and asked if we could have a conversation on my podcast about it. So here we are today. How's it going? Nice. I'm happy to be able to spend my day off with you having this conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, how's the baby doing? How old's the baby? Oh, the baby is amazing. He's 14 months. Mm-hmm. He's just the sweetest thing that you could ever just be around. He makes us so happy. It's just been such a joy to get to just watch him grow, to be in a good space, to be settled, you know. So I love him. He's awesome. I haven't seen any recent videos or or pictures. What's going no, on? No, I'm, like... I'm trash. I'm a trash mother. <laughs> no, honestly, no. I'm so busy with work. And I took three classes this summer. 
So I've been a busy, busy bee, but I do need to get better about posting. You know what it is? Social media is so weird now Yeah. with the algorithm and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't even see half of my friends' things that are posting anymore. It's just like all ads all the time. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. To, I hope I'm not missing anything you're posting. And no, by I, the haven't, way, don't, I haven't been posting though, but. Don't feel bad about not posting pictures of your baby. A lot of people are on that wavelength. They're like, nope, no kids. But anyway, this is a long journey to our conversation. Today, we're here to talk about your journey with understanding your own uh, mental health. And before we get into the thick of the conversation, how do you identify? Um, I identify as she, her. Okay. Um, are there additional ways in which you identify? I think that I think that people see me, first of all, first of all my identity, I'm a Black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people also see me as someone who's confident, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have been able to say um years and years ago but i think that when i walk in a room now i'm not afraid to be present um and i think people can see that and i'm also very friendly i think i have a friendly face some people have told me that i have rbf and they were afraid to talk to me right away but i think i'm pretty damn friendly and please um explain what rbf is oh rbf is resting bitch face i was not gonna go there i'm like you you tell us what rbf is Okay, and I don't think you um, come off as not being friendly. Yeah, um, yeah I, I agree with folks. You have a very inviting air about you. And I always felt that way. And I also thought you came off as very confident many years ago, but you didn't view yourself that way. No, that's okay. called faking it till you make it, my friend. Mm. Talk about that. Well, I don't know if it's so much as, as a story, but I've just had low self-esteem for a really, really long time. Um, and I think I started to become a little bit more confident with myself. I wouldn't say I knew my worth yet, but definitely got more confident in my twenties when I started to be like, wow, actually I am, I am beautiful and I am smart. And, you know, so I would say probably, and I think that's probably around the time where you met me. Okay. I've never seen a picture of you in your teen years and I swear I'm not hitting on you. You're a married woman. I'm a married man. I don't do that. Um, but I'm looking at you and the person I even met 10 years ago or 15 years ago, actually time flies. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's bad. I'm I'm just like thrown right now. I'm like, so there was a period in your life. Did you like have like big glasses, buck teeth? Yes. All of those things. What else um, can we add to it? A jerry curl. Okay. Um, you know, my skin, I had really bad acne. Okay. Um, you know, I had to grow into my teeth a little bit. These two front ones here, uh, these two babies in the front were, they were pretty big. Uh, I had a lot of scars on my body because I um, was a tomboy and stuff like that. And then all my friends were really, really light skinned girls with like big butts and long hair, you know, the Verdean wave. They were like the baddies and I was always like the mid. <laughs> and you were comparing yourself to them. Yes, absolutely. For sure. And men, you know, men compared too. And I think a lot of young girls, our self-esteem is tied around how much attention and stuff that you get from guys, right? And um, I grew out of that, thankfully. And how did you come to grow out of that? I mean, Hadley, I know we only have an hour and I say all the time I need to write a book because it's been such a damn journey for me. But I think eventually I got tired of not seeing myself worth. Um, I think that some of the way I was with my kids' fathers and stuff like that. And the way I was dating, just kind of taking anything from anyone who would just, you know, give you some love. But I would say 
probably around like my after I had my daughter she's 11 I think I was probably around like 25 26 around that age I'm like okay it's time to get serious like what are you doing with your life here you can't keep getting into bad relationships you know not getting what you deserve you know I just I think I just got really serious about my life um and then you know I started working really hard I was advancing in my career you know I always had drive and stuff like that but I, I, but quite honestly, what I'm 37 now, I would say that I really didn't know my self-worth and gain my wings and my confidence until I would say my my early 30s. And that is after I realized that I had ADHD, I got diagnosed. Um, so I kept feeling like I was stunted. Like, why am I not getting to the next level in life? Why is it taking me so long to finish school? You know, there's road bumps and stuff like that, but just a really hard time completing things, not getting to the next level, giving up when things were getting hard and things like that. Um, One of my friends actually said to me, she's like, do you think you have ADD, girl? And I was like, I don't know. I never, you know, even thought of anything like that. And I ended up getting a neuropsych test and I was diagnosed. Yeah. And then I started seeing a therapist also. And that was probably has got to be the best thing that I've ever done for myself. Okay. Few things here. You, you refer to me as Hadley and I go by Stena on the podcast. That's my stage name. Okay. It, it's all good. Stena. You know, I was actually going to call you that earlier today too. And I'm like, I don't know if he wants me to use like his full name or his government. No, no, it's all good. I am the number one Stena. I'm the, the only Stena you'll ever meet. When that song came out, it was like, the I mean the song is the number one stunner, stunner right? But I mean stunner sounds course. so close to it, yeah. yeah. Pretty daggone close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, you mentioned this matter of a friend noting something in you and and saying to you that you appeared to have ADD or asking you a question. Mm-hmm. Was this somebody you knew for a brief period of time, a, a long nah. time? Yeah, it was one of my best friends. I've known her since I was like. Um, I mean, for as long as I can remember, our families grew up um, together in the Kingdom Hall. Yeah. Yeah. So I've known her for forever and we're super, super close now. And the reason I'm asking about the extent of your relationship is because um, oftentimes we're able to receive feedback or even consider a question of that sort based on the extent of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Like if some random person, if you were on a first date or something and your eyes were darting and the other person said, yo, you got ADD or something? You've been like, what? Offended. Excuse yeah, exactly. Me? And so you're willing to consider the possibility of having ADD. Um, did the friend talk about the symptoms of that? Like what led you to take the next step towards well, a diagnosis? And, you know, I will say, actually, I was a little offended when she first said it, because I'm like, what? I can I complete things. My life is okay. What you mean? You know, but then when I marinated on it a little bit and I thought about it, I'm like, I need to get this done. I already worked in healthcare at Mass General, kind of slid in the back door, got some help, you know, so I got in fairly quickly to get. Okay. And how did it help? First thing they had me do was cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, mm-hmm. and they just help you to kind of make a list for yourself and prioritize like that's one thing that's helped me immensely and I'm laughing because the same friend who said I have ADD she's always like well did you make a list well did you make a list? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh so she has an understanding of it that's I think that's just her personality she's super yeah. organized she works in construction um yeah. and she's an estimator so she has to be super detailed and organized that's how she is so I gain 
those skills, you know, I gleaned those skills from her. So yeah, so I did CBT, which I didn't love. I think it was mostly because I wasn't connecting with the therapist. We need more people of color in that field. Mm. Sure. Please talk a little bit more about that. We need way more. condescending? Like not what? condescending. That's not the word. There was just no connection. And there's just some things that when you're a Black person, you just connect with, you know, yeah. in this country. And she would, like, I was dealing with some stuff with my mom, you know, who was living with me. And she's like, well, why can't you just tell her this? And why can't you just tell her that? And I'm like, she's my mother, right? And like, you know, I wasn't talking about money. Well, can you just borrow it from this? But I'm like, no, I don't have no people in my life who have money. What are you yeah. talking about? You know, yeah. our experiences are different. So it was kind of hard for me to uh, listen to some of the things that she was saying to me because it didn't make sense or pertain to my life. Got it. It sounds like she may have come from a higher socioeconomic background. Oh, sure. Like she came from for money sure. and just, yeah. so there's race in the matter of class, you know, mm-hmm. that led to yep. this disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so since the diagnosis, and was the diagnosis ADD or ADHD? ADHD. Okay. And since the diagnosis, and you also have- anxiety disorder as well. All right. So we're going to talk about those two things separately. Yeah. So when you received the diagnosis, how did it help you um, with regard to completing school? I know you talked about becoming more organized or learning to be organized. At what age were you diagnosed and what have you accomplished since the diagnosis? Ooh, I was diagnosed maybe, Jesus, maybe eight years ago. Yeah. Eight to 10 years ago, I want to say. Um, since then, I mean, I've grown in my career now, you know, I went from being a medical assistant, you know, to an administrative manager making like triple what I was making back then. Mm -hmm. I'm almost finished with school. Even being able to save and manage my money has been different. Um, you know, I bought a house literally, I don't, I don't want to say that everything in my life was because of the ADD diagnosis, but a lot, but it has definitely helped for sure with the schooling. I mean, there were times where I was like, I'm not doing this. It's too hard. I'm giving up. I'm walking away from the computer. I'll give up on the class. I can't do this. It's too hard. Once I got the diagnosis and they they gave me medicine as well. The medication really just helped me to be able to focus and to be able to finish things and to be able to center myself and, you know, do the work. So. I'm thinking about a young man that I worked with many years ago um, and my foray into really understanding or at least noting ADD and ADHD and other people started when I was coaching basketball. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I would say initially I was very insensitive. I'd be in practice coaching a play or something and I'd notice a couple of players just all over the place. And I'm like, yo, focus, come on. Thinking like I could just yell at somebody to to focus on what we're doing. And that wasn't the case. They were just really unable to do it. And over time, I noted that. I'm like, so it's not a matter of like redirecting somebody. It's they really have an inability to be present. One particular young man had a case that I thought was very apparent and we talked about it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, I do experience the inability to focus. I am disorganized. I am like, he just went down a list of things. And I said, you might want to have a conversation with your primary care physician. And his psychologist called me and said, this is one of the worst cases of ADHD I have ever seen in a young man. I don't know how he got this far in life with this level of ADHD. 
Do you mind if I just touch on a point that you just stated about Black boys? In sure, yeah, please. Okay, okay. I feel like there's a stigma in our community because, you know, young Black boys in schools, they definitely do get that diagnosis so much, right? They get it more than anybody else. And I feel like because that happens, we we don't want to deal with the ADD with our sons at all. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I just want parents to really pay attention to their children and not be so afraid. I just wanted to say that my son has ADD too. So that's also changed my trajectory and the way I look at it because I've been dealing with him with it since he was like six years old. Yeah, so. yeah. I think about all the um, black boys uh, that I grew up with, um, some of whom used to get whipped regularly by their parents <laughs> for being bad, for yep. misbehaving and acting up, especially in school. I just didn't grow up in a community or come up in a family where we talked about the reasons as to why people were misbehaving other than being willfully bad. Mm-hmm. Now, as an adult, I'm like, something may have underlied that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when when it came to my son, people would always be like, oh, just whoop it, whoop him or let me keep him for a week. I'll get him in line. And I'm like, OK, sure. He's not going to come back home and not have ADHD. So whatever you say, take him, you know. But it, I mean, I grew up in a house like that. Right. I was whooping him. That's the way I knew. Corporal punishment was how I grew up. So that's what I used to do in my household. Right. And then that's something that you we really had to break a general a generational curse of in, in my house. Like my my daughter, she ain't even never had a butt whooping, you know, and I, I don't plan to, you know, spank my little one either. But, you know. So um, and I'm with you on that. I don't um, administer corporal punishment. I don't hit my kids. And I had to unlearn that. Mm-hmm. And Me I remember too. growing up, I talk about this on the podcast all the time, just watching TV uh, sitcoms and seeing um, kids get grounded. I'm like, oh, you got grounded. <laughs> yeah, not 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 perfect. Didn't always. My son definitely got the brunt of it, um, but definitely unlearned, unlearned behavior for sure. Now, talk to me about the um, anxiety diagnosis. My anxiety is so bad. I I actually am supposed to be taking medicine for that as well, but I don't because it hurts my stomach. So I've just been trying like more holistic ways to manage it um, with like meditation and trying to make sure that I exercise, what I put in my body is healthy and things like that. But my anxiety is really bad. And I'm thankful that I have my therapist to go to every week. I mean, it's bad to the point where like if my husband goes to the store and I know it's a quick trip to the store. If I don't hear from this guy in 30 minutes, I'm panicked. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, so that's one thing I work on with my therapist all the time, just trying to be present in the moment and enjoy what's in front of you and take stuff day to day. So I'm not so worried all the time. She said it's a trauma response, though. I've been living in trauma mode for so long and grind hustle mode, just trying to kind of level myself, you know, yeah. work up that hierarchy pyramids that they talk about all the time on the bottom one all the time just struggling to find some way to rest my head you know and I think once I started actually taking care of myself and my brain that's actually when I noticed the anxiety more I think because I actually had time to sit and think and process and I had things to worry about now right my life is stable. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my family. I finally got something good, right? I don't yeah. want to lose that. And I think that's when it came. You talked about the matter of your husband leaving for a half hour or leaving to go out and you kind of 
panicking within a half hour. Can, why is that? I'm just, I mean, we, you know, my family's dealt with a lot of death and stuff like that, but mm. I'm just worried about something bad happening all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how do you manage that? Um, some of the stuff that my therapist has told me to work on, just stop, take a breath, meditate, remember where you are. If the anxiety is really bad, if it's really, really bad, um, then I'll pick up the phone, talk to her, call someone, talk about it. Um, or I've also, she put me on the Razapam at one point. So if I'm having like an anxiety attack and I can't get my breathing and stuff together, that's an extra layer that helps. But I don't, I don't really have to do that all the time. Most of the holistic stuff that she's helped me to work on helps me pull it back together. And thank you for sharing this. Yeah, yeah. At what age did you develop language to talk about how you were feeling and what people could do to help? Uh, my 30s, for sure, I would say. Um, once I realized how much the, the the trajectory of my life changed from getting help, I felt like I had to be super vocal about it. Or if I saw things in other people that were maybe stopping them from getting to their goals, I'm like, well, maybe this, this is what worked for me. Or, you know, I understand sharing my story, letting people know that it's okay. Maybe there is something, you know, a lot of people just have no idea. They don't talk about mental health in the black community. When we talk about it, it usually has a negative stigma attached to it. I'm not crazy. Nothing's wrong with me. This is just how I am. I don't want to be given medicine. Everyone's trying to hand down a diagnosis. Sometimes that is true, but don't sell yourself short either if it's something that can help you. For me, if anybody needs mental health treatment, uh, therapy, it's Black black folks. You know, we've been through the most, you know, in, in this country and, you know. All that stuff is in our DNA. And it's really good to just be able to talk to people and, and get some of that stuff out. And in your general environment, because now, I mean, you said you're making three times more than you were um, as a medical assistant. So you're making a little bit more money or a lot more money. You own a house. You're married. Um, I know you're, it seems as though your husband is an artist, photographer of some yeah, sort. Yeah, yeah. Dope art, dope He's art, He's a creative, I say, yeah. I'm assuming you might be around some um, other Black folks who are making a little bit more money. Do you find that the conversation about mental health is different in the Black community based on income level? I think so, yeah. Income. Um, I think when you have more money, you have more access to education, you have more access to different types of people. And so the conversation looks different. The things you talk about are different, you know, that the way you look at things is different because you're able to talk to people who have a different perspective than you. And we're going to go full circle now. So at the beginning of the episode, I asked how you identify and you initially used your pronouns and then you said uh, black woman. Um, and then we had this long conversation about your journey with understanding your mental health, ADHD, and um, anxiety disorder in particular. And so I would also add, uh, or would you agree if you were uh, defined as a Black woman who's middle class that has ADHD and anxiety disorder? You know what? I never even thought of that, but I feel like it's so funny because I'm like working on my LinkedIn profile and I'm always like, what are the right words that I need to say? Like, what do I want people to really, really know about me as I continue walking in my journey and my purpose? And I actually love sharing the mental health status as a way I identify myself. I think that's important. It's not something I'm afraid to talk about. You know, it's a badge of honor, honestly. Like, this is what I have. 
this is what I was able to do to fix it and so forth. So thank you for that. I'm going to write that down. I try. That's why people come on the Identity and Me podcast. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? However, does any um, trepidation come up for you around that to offer that to people? Because uh, to a large extent, I feel as a society, we've come a long way with accepting that um, people have emotional issues to manage. We're not in a place yet where we, I think in the workplace, I don't think that's accommodated readily in the educational realm, perhaps like when you're a student, if you have a known issue, um, especially a 504 plan or an IEP, it's going to be accommodated. But like if you're interviewing for a job and you say I have anxiety disorder, do you feel as though people will see that information and embrace it or it will be held against you? I know. I feel like corporate America just sucks in general, right? I am for, I work in psychiatry, um, but I'm, I'm fortunate because I work with some really great leaders. I mean, they work us, but they also understand mental health. So when people say things to us like, I need a mental health day, it's not a big deal for us, you know. And we work in psychiatry, so I think we kind of have a little up and up, you know. We have more understanding a little bit more. But I do think that corporate America is not keeping up with the wave, right? You know, and I think that's right now why they're having such a hard time hiring people right now. People don't want to work and be stressed out. People don't want to work nine to five, 40 hours a week, spend half their life at work when they're dealing with real life things outside of their job, you know, and then come to work and be ready and be present. It's not realistic. And I think after this pandemic, people are noticing that more and more now, right? Like I have one life. I want to make sure I'm taking care of my mental health and my mental health and myself internally and not just give to these jobs anymore. Mm. And so I'm thinking about the person who's listening to this episode, like, yeah, maybe I need to talk to a therapist, but they're worried about the cost of that. (sighs) Is it expensive for you to see a therapist regularly? It just, you're getting me worked up and the advocate's about to come up, come out of me. Go ahead. Advocate away. First of all, therapy, a good therapist is expensive. I mean, I'm lucky. And I'm not, I don't want to sit here and complain. I'm very lucky. I have a black woman therapist who works at the same place that I work at. So it was pretty easy for me. I know how to get a referral to social services, you know, but a lot of people don't. There's a shortage of of therapists. If you have certain types of insurance, then you can only go to certain types of therapy. So that's even going to put you on an even longer waiting list. If you can pay out of pocket, sure, it's going to be easy for you to go on you know, what, psychiatry.com or whatever and say, oh, this is the person who I think I like. I can pay top dollar for it. Great. But for most people, that's not their reality. I shouldn't have to choose, like, do I want to go see my therapist this week or do I want to go pay for, like, my medications that are going to cost that same amount of money also, Mm. you know? Mm. Did that ring a bell? Oh you, you can laugh out loud. That's the that's the roll runner. No, no, no. Woody Woodpecker. What? The annoying red bird that used to like peck on wood and Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you watch Woody Woodpecker once upon a time? I guess I I remember it, but I had it all messed up with the other characters. Woody Woodpecker was this really annoying bird who used to like antagonize people. And many years later, uh, I learned through others that 
he was supposed to represent a character with ADHD. What? Yeah, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but he was supposedly ADHD. Oh, hence why he was terrible. all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, wow, that's how they represented ADHD, perhaps? I can't think of any characters in media and cartoons that had a, a learning disability or learning challenge. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm thinking about it now, not in a cartoon, an episode of The Cosby Show, they went through, it was a series of episodes, Theo had dyslexia. Right. Yep. Theo had dyslexia and I had no clue about what dyslexia was. And they went through that in the episodes and he, Theo, ended up helping another young man who also had dyslexia ultimately. But I refer to those episodes in the cartoon uh, because we're here to talk about my conversation with Jasmine. So I'm here with Dr. Sahoy Lee, who joins me in these conversations to uh, offer some of her professional insight about what was discussed. So uh, Sahoy or Shahizel, what were some takeaways for you from the conversation? Hey, Stena. You know, it's always fun. I always appreciate talking with you because you have a way to bring up a topic that may be different or foreign for some folks, but you tie in different cultural reference points that might help people have a different way to enter the conversation. So it's always neat to see how you do that. Thank um, you. Thank you. I try. <laughs> so what, oh gosh, you know, I really appreciate her story. And the moment that really stood out for me, and I don't know if you, if you remember, she said that she got to a point, she just wanted to figure out her life. She said, I just need to figure out my life. And she started to do some research and find out what is it that she needed. And it was through that that she discovered that she, in fact, has ADHD. And I I just really appreciate that self-awareness when somebody says to themselves, all right, what's going on? What do I need to do? What do we need to figure out? What do we need to do differently? That level of self-awareness, I think it's huge. I think it's something that people achieve through coming to counseling, for example. Yep. Um, and when that moment, when that clicks, it's amazing what can happen. People kind of make it into the business that they're going to figure stuff out. Um, and they're going to find information and look for options and find out resources. And that's powerful. So with Jasmine, when she figured out, you know, I need a neuroscience test and I'm going to find out how to do this. And she happened to work at MGH and she had some connections. So she was able to do that. And it gave her a wealth of information about how her brain works. And then what happened? Not that she credited all to this diagnosis, but once she figured out how her brain works, you couldn't stop her. She was doing a different, you know, she's going, she's getting promoted. She was going to therapy. Her career was getting on a different track. She was on medication to help her brain focus. And then she was able to be herself in a way that she wasn't able to in the past. It's powerful. And, you know, uh, something that struck me listening to her was the matter of her friend pointing out to her that she might have ADD and it turned out to be ADHD. She was willing to accept this feedback and then do some investigating, which ultimately led to the diagnosis. And she ended up being on a different trajectory as a result of learning how her brain functions. I am struck by the fact that it was a friend who noticed this at 30 years old, as opposed to the number of teachers she had 
previously and guidance counselors and even in her household, like nobody else took note of this. And so my question to you is, do you think in general there's a lack of knowledge or awareness of what ADHD is and how it shows up in people? I think we've gotten better as a society over the years, but I do think that there's often a misunderstanding. And I I also know that certain populations tend to be misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed with ADHD. I think about boys. I think about boys of color. Um, Jasmine talked about this as well. Um, so there's still a lot more information that folks need to have, but I also think there needs to be resources. You know, there might have been teacher that noticed, but they didn't know what to do with that information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There maybe there wasn't a counselor they can refer her to, or they didn't they didn't have access to neuropsych testing. And maybe the family noticed, but they didn't have language for it or understanding for it. So I think it's really more about misinformation and lack of information. What are the symptoms of ADHD? People often think that someone with ADHD is always distracted. And that's not really true. Are they distractible more easily? Yes. But they they can focus and they focus on the things that they want to. It may not always be the thing that the teacher wants to or the parent want to, but they're able to focus. In fact, they can even lose track of time focusing on whatever it is that they hyper-focused in. You know, so they can be real... Um, they're not just kind of uh, running around all over the place. It's not like that. It's more so they're like, not like Woody Woodpecker? No, <laughs> not, not at all. Yeah. They have the ability to focus. They have the ability to sustain attention, but they have a hard time deciding on what part to sustain their attention on. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. So my husband has ADHD, and so he has a hard time sometimes when we're in conversation, say we're at a restaurant. There may be somebody, the way that someone's chewing or tapping their feet across the restaurant, and that gets his attention yeah. instead of me, you know, our conversation oh, at the table. Yeah. So it's not that he can't sustain attention. It's just the wrong thing, right? And what he's had to learn is to refocus and shift uh, and get cues from people like his wife giving him the evil eye, like, yeah. oh, listen to me, <laughs> um, <laughs> that helps him say, oh, oh, oh okay, let me let me refocus. As I think about ADHD, a thought comes to mind. Um, I'm often struck by what are on the shelves at grocery stores. They get more and more creative with the cereals that are out there. It's like maple syrup, Captain Crunch. I'm like, oh, wow, the Crunch Berries weren't sweet enough. Um, I'm wondering if ADHD is genetic or if it's something that folks can acquire as a, a function of having too much sugar in their diet or an imbalanced diet of some sort. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to answer this in two part. One is ADHD is this genetic component to it. And going back to the question you asked, you know, how come no one in Jasmine's family noticed anything? It may have been that somebody in her family had it too. And so for them, it's just kind of normal behavior. That's how they are too. Well, you're acting this way because, well, this person is that. So somehow within the family dynamic, it gets normalized. So it doesn't get pointed out to be something we need to explore further. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Totally. So it runs in the family. There's definitely a genetic component. You know, I I think sugar has an impact on all of us. (laughs) Um, And I think if somebody has already a genetic vulnerability to something like ADHD, sure, maybe their diet can exacerbate and um, 
highlight something that they would have had anyway. Right. But I will say that this generation of youth have a shorter attention span <laughs> than when you and I were growing up. And is that a function of cell phones and technology? Correct. Is being overstimulated? That's right. Okay, we, so our brain is now so used to being constantly fired, um, firing and being uh, and navigating information. We're constantly being fed information on our phones, on TV, everything, video games, right? And so there's almost this, um, you get used to it. You get used to that level of stimulation. And so attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And this is not about genetics. This is about cultural shifts that's happening. And so if, if I may reference another conversation you and I have had, it's okay to be bored. Yeah. And I actually think it's a good exercise for all of us to have our brain just like calm, not stimulated. And you're me. referring to driving all the way up to Vermont with your kids in the backseat without a tablet or a device or anything. That's right. And I'm you'll hear impressed. my kids you'll hear my kids say, Mom, I'm bored. I'm like, okay, well, how do you know? What do you yeah. want to do? But like, what are some options? What can we do? And it's okay to be bored. It means that you're you're right here. You're present. And that is okay. And back in the day when we were bored, we would create a mini golf course in the backyard. We would grab uh, a milk crate, a hot uh, butcher knife, cut the bottom of it, nail it to a tree, and then play basketball. I mean, we got real creative with what we did back in the day um, as a function of being bored. But yeah, heaven forbid now, just, you know, got to make sure the kids are occupied. Now, Jasmine also talked about having anxiety disorder. And you actually educated me recently without maybe realizing it, because I thought anxiety was the condition, not anxiety disorder. And you pointed out to me that people experience anxiety. Everybody does. Yep. But it's the frequency of it that ends up being an issue or, uh, or whether or not it impacts your ability to function. So in her story, what did you hear? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. What, what did you notice? He, he, uh, she had anxiety and it got to a point was really hard for her to function. Yeah. Right. And even now it kind of plays in these little episodes where she would have, it's been a while since, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since she had panic attacks, but she had them. Yeah. Um, but even now with her partner, if he's out at a grocery store or, or on a trip that's supposed to be quick, if she doesn't hear from him, she starts to get nervous. Yeah. Now she's calling, right? Yeah. Where are you? What are you? And so those are little ways in which anxiety can impact the quality of your life and impact your ability to function um, freely in your life. And so those are the moments when it is diagnosable now, right? That these are uh, problems that needs to be addressed. And for her, she's addressing it through therapy and through medication. I get stuck on the matter of nature and nurture often, because going back again to the conversation with her friend, friend says, you might have something going on. She's initially taken aback, Jasmine, yeah. then goes and has a conversation or is seen by uh, a physician Ultimately, a diagnosis comes about, and then she takes these steps to not only recognize the problem or the issue, and then um, accepts the strategies that are offered to her to deal with these issues. So the nature-nurture aspect is the humility that comes with that, mm. the willingness to say, okay, there is this issue, 
it's not abnormal. And I am going to accept the guidance that I'm being offered to deal with it. So it, where does that come from? Yeah. I don't know where it comes from from Jasmine. I think she is amazing to hear how she was able to take that advice from her friend, got offended at first, but started to get curious about it herself. She wasn't judging herself. She wasn't mad at herself. It wasn't that. She was like, okay, well, let's find out. Let me figure out my life, is what she said, right? And I think for other people, that journey takes a little longer. You know, for some folks, there may be they may be stuck in more of the, why did it take until 30? Why did those teachers not tell me? Why did my parents not tell me? And they might have to spend some time working out some of those frustrations, anger, grief, a lost time. Had I known this earlier, my life would have been different, right? Yeah. So for some people, there's a little bit more of that journey. Now, Jasmine didn't tell us everything. So maybe she worked that work out some of that in therapy eventually. But for some people, it takes some time from awareness, diagnosis to finally treatment. And I would even say for some people who are in treatment, it might take a minute before they totally engage in the work, you know? So everybody's journey to healing can just be can just be different. And another thing that I uh, picked up in the episode was her frustration with having the white therapist who didn't understand her. Mm. And I also think about how you in your own office here on campus basically tried to make sure that students could see themselves in your staff. And now with five people, that's impossible, but you still have broad perspectives um, in that group. And so I'm curious to know why it's important to have psychologists who have different backgrounds. It allows for choice. It allows for the client to decide who they would like to see, who they like to connect with. I always think that um, the key to mental health is recognizing that you have options. Anytime someone feels stuck, we're in trouble, right? And part of therapy is trying to unstuck somebody. And so I'm really glad that Jasmine never felt like she was stuck with her white therapist. You know, she learned what she needed to learn. She got got what she needed to get. And then it was time to say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> were, yeah. Right. There was enough of these moments when she's like, you want me to borrow money? I don't have family like that. Or you want me to tell my mom what? I don't talk to my mother this way. Like there were enough of this that she did not feel fully seen by her therapist that she was able to say, OK, no, thank you to you. Thank you for the work that we've done, but we don't need to continue. Let me go and find somebody else. And I think that's the other great decision that she made. She didn't just quit therapy because that the course that course ran out, right? Yeah, yeah. She said, let me go find somebody else who sees me, all of me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now she has connected with a Black therapist. And gosh, that sounds like she is so connected to this person and is doing really good work, right? And I want that in, it, it, for our clients that come through our offices. You decide who you're connecting with. Um, and it's really important, I think, for clients to see themselves reflected in the people who are working with them, too. Special thanks to Jasmine for sharing her story on the podcast. I also appreciate Dr. Sahoy Lee for making time to offer her professional perspective about my conversation with Jasmine. 
Hopefully you came away with some useful knowledge from listening to this episode. This is the second consecutive episode I've devoted to talking about the process of discovery that people go through with their mental health and how they flourished after being diagnosed. There is no shame in seeking help and owning an aspect of yourself that isn't considered to be the norm. Who knows? Maybe it would be the norm if mental health services were readily available. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity in me. Identity in me.